All right. Ooh, there's Craig. Scuba Obsessed is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Obsessed episode 468 recorded live October 22nd, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it's dark awful early. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, and we had one hell of a lightning show last night in this area. I don't know if you guys did. And we I, had I, almost a quarter inch of rain in one hour in my backyard. Wow. Just yeah, I, I, I saw the lightning show. I woke up about two in the morning and, you know, the dogs are huddling because they're not, uh, at least one of them is not a big fan of lightning. And it was raining pretty hard. I could hear it on the roof. You know, you, normally I can hear a little bit of rain, you know, hit the windowsills, but when I'm hearing it on the roof, it's really coming down and uh, the front of the yard turned into a big pond. So that tells me we had quite a bit. And I kept looking for the white stuff or the big white pellets. Oh no, it's too early. No, in, it in, isn't. In, in Missouri, I was talking to them down there and, um, uh, Yesterday it was 89 degrees and they're predicting 19 degrees tomorrow. I mean, that is a swing. What's that 70 degree change? And just yeah, I saw 48 hours in a couple of Western States, uh, that they had had something like that, like almost a 40 to 50 degree shift between when they woke up and when they went to bed. Yeah. yeah that's, now if you went that's... out for a little hike or something and you, oh, yeah. you were not prepared, that's oh, when people no. die. Well, yeah, no mountain climbing. Don't do that. Yeah, you got to be prepared. I mean, that's good. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me it's time to get my uh, cold weather bag and my vehicle all set up. I've, I I've, did uh, that uh, last week. Got my snowblower checked out, primed to mm -hmm. send the garage, lawnmowers in the back. Got my generator out, did my 10-minute pre-start, make sure I have extra gas, so we're ready. Yep. Yeah, Bring it on, baby. At the robotics build site, I, I turned the heat on to make sure that the heater would work. Probably have a little you, late. Probably have should you have done noticed that. how much advertisements you have lately for free solar power in Stevensville or St. Joe? Yeah, I I don't know why that is. I mean, because you're talking about that's most likely Facebook type ads where you're seeing Not those. really. Oh, well, oh. Facebook's for sure. But I've seen it in a couple of other articles and papers I've seen lately. Yeah. Because um, for, for the solar power, uh, you know, those ads you see on Facebook, they're bid on. So what they do is they look at a particular demographic and they say, hey, we're going to bid a certain amount and get it. And I've gotten a ton. But the problem with them is they're kind of spammy. Uh, you know, this is some local stuff in the U.S. But the U.S. actually per watt is some of the highest cost for solar power anywhere like Australia. Uh, solar power, I think is a, is less than a dollar a watt. And, uh, up here, and I may be using the wrong term. It might be kilowatt or watt. I'd have to, to look, but you know, down in Australia, I think they're about, they're less than a dollar and up here we're 
Uh, Tesla has just announced the dollar fifty, but practically it's about a dollar ninety nine, and in some places it's going to be over two dollars. And then state by state, it depends on what you can do with the power. Uh, you yeah, know, some have have net metering, and you can sell some of the extra back to the utility. But uh, Michigan, the utilities have all been working really hard on preventing that. So we're gonna we're gonna end up getting screwed because utilities will get their way. It just seemed to me the battery cost is so much and replacement for the batteries is not that long period of time. Then you've got disposal costs for both the batteries. And if you have the older version of the solar cells, uh, they're not uh, recyclable friendly. Yeah, you have, you have to dig into that. Right now, batteries actually have a pretty good recycle value. Uh, and I think a lot of the systems are doing where they're really over specking the battery so that you have quite a decent lifespan, but I haven't looked into them. I have friends and contacts who have them, but uh, some of them, they're usually East coast or West coast where they were getting, because the national credit was 20% rebate on solar. Uh, I think it's down to 18% this year. And then in, it will, it's slowly phasing down to where it will be nothing within two or three years, unless you're commercial commercial. I think it will be 12% rebate. But the problem is it's still a thirty, forty thousand dollar investment. For me, it's about thirty thousand to forty thousand dollars for the solar panels. And then you have to have the battery backups because you've only got yep. solar during the day. Which means you gotta have um, a place to put them. And then you've got I mean, I think the battery backup for the system I was looking at just for fun was, you know, two thousand pounds. That's a lot of batteries. Yeah. Where are you gonna put them? Yeah, you have to have a spot uh, a spot for them. But I know people in California who are on the the, re- the track to get a seven year return on their investment, and they were in the thirty to forty thousand dollar range, and even on the East Coast. But part of it, it's because what you can do when you know. And I apologize for people you might want to skip by this, but uh, for you know, because if you have time a day metering, you can make money. I say make money. You can, you can make it cost you less by uh being on the grid certain times of the day and then selling it back net metering on other times of day so combining that with solar panels you know what would normally be a 20 20 year payback uh has become less than 10 7 to 10 Uh, but you got to do the math you know it depends on which way your house is orienting uh how many trees there are uh how your panels are set up because uh uh, if you've got, like, if you're not in total sun, then sometimes your panels aren't, uh, generating electricity at the same rate. So depending on how your grid tie converters are on your solar panels will determine, you know, the more inverters you have, the less that each panel has to be the same because, you know, there's some efficiencies involved and then panels are getting more efficient. Uh, but the U S I think part of it is a tariff. So we've got to, we've, we've jacked the tariffs up on it. Uh, because we've accused uh, certain countries of dumping the the panels, yeah. and then I think I think some of it's the regulations. Other countries have uh, wanted to encourage the solar power, so they've made it easier. Uh, where in the U.S., especially up in here in Michigan, some of the northern climates where we don't see the panels that often, uh, you, you better plan on multiple months for approvals and inspections and then the utilities if you're going to tie back to grid if you're not going to do, if you're going to do off grid it's a little bit quicker but if you're tying back to the grid the utility has to approve it 
And if the regulations say they've got 90 days to approve it, you're going to be approved on 89 days because they're, they're looking Karen, at it. I was going to talk What's to that? Karen about it because she has that system. She just posted some items up there for her system. Yeah. She says it's, and now she's uh, out in the outback, you know, because she's yeah. going to lose her power during the winter. I can understand that totally, you know, oh, but well, I was for, curious about that. Yeah. yeah. I know nothing to do with diving, but it's still relative to what well, where we live. Yeah, environmental and some other stuff. But yeah, see, so she's north of us. Uh, you and me were on AEP Power, which is American Electric Power, which American Electric Power goes from Texas all the way up to Michigan. They've got a variety of uh, utilities. You know, we're an I&M, which is a division of AAP. But Karen's in the consumers, uh, consumers Power, which originally started in Maine, and they've got uh, most of the northern half of Michigan in the UP. Uh, so she's a little bit different company. Michigan has, but there's got to be 10 or 20 power companies in Michigan. Uh, the you know big one is Consumers Power is probably the largest. Uh, you've got AAP who comes and touches the bottom where we're at. Uh, the east side of the state, you've got, uh, God, who is that? There's, what's, there's that new, what's that new gas plant being put in in uh, Niles? Uh, it's a peaker plant. Um, that may be independent. Because then you've also got where they can lease lines. So you can be an independent power provider, and you can sell to companies four states away. So uh, I just haven't looked into it, so I'm just I'm just guessing. Because you've, you've got there in Covert. South Haven, you've got that. That's a uh, consumer's powers, Palisades nuclear plant, which is uh, slated to uh, be decommissioned in a couple of years. And across Actually, the road. Yeah. Go ahead. And then you got the peaker plant across the, the, yeah, the road. Yeah. You, you got natural gas peaker plant, and then they're building that new peaker in Niles. Uh, uh, the coal plants, like I think the one in Muskegon, I think that's been shut down now, hasn't it? I'm not really sure. Yeah, because there's one in Muskegon and then Grand Haven. There's there's some coal plants, and you know, they had been getting exemptions for years, saying, "Ah, you don't need to meet the clean air requirements." But I think they finally, about six seven years ago, locked them. You know, kind of got them cornered, so they had to stop. So you're seeing a bunch of peakers go in. Yeah, I know Michigan because, City. I mean, it's been there forever, and I expect that one to be dumped because I don't think it's been upgraded. Yeah, I think that one's uh, yeah. due to go here pretty soon. Well, anyway, so I didn't mean to get on a transit there. Oh, crap. I apologize. I'm, my pass, my screen protector went on, and now I'm trying to type in my password. <laughs> and it's talking and typing my password doesn't doesn't work for me too well. Oh, come on. Well, well this may be a podcast we end here pretty quick, because if I don't... I'm I'm running out of my times I can mistype it. Oh, what the hell here? Well, whew, I'm back. I make sure I don't do that again. I think it's about one more time from being locked out. Uh yeah. So the yeah the 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 power situation is is kind of interesting. I've been I've been looking at because. Uh, you know, some some of the things of the grid is just how much overcapacity they have to do just to make sure it's powered. So you're seeing some of the utilities have actually gone into buying these uh, power banks, these big battery banks. And because they're so quick to react, it's saving them a ton of money. Uh, you know, down in Australia, they've done it. They've done it in California where they've had the rolling blackouts 
and brownouts, and that's helped them. Uh, New England's actually incentivizing the uh, the battery backups for uh, consumers. So you put the battery backup, and if you sign up to let the utility uh, pull power from your battery backup when they want, uh, you can get a pretty good rate. And they, and they said the utility had saved them quite a bit of money. Whatever it takes. Yeah. So I've got the space. That's one of the things on my list because I, you know, I'm I'm not too many years out from retirement myself, and I'm thinking that you know electricity is never going to become any cheaper. So if I can get, you know, I've got, uh, you know, a 24 by 60 pole barn. My house is about 70 by 30 some feet. So if I can put solar panels, and they're both mostly south facing. So if I can put solar panels on those. I should be able to cover most of my power needs. So I could always hope. And we lose power. We lost power last night. It blinked for a little bit. Well, that's enough of uh, solar power talk for tonight. <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Derek and Karen tonight. Oh, I think we just lost Karen. Don't know that she's still typing. I'm still sure. here. Yeah, I see her, but I don't see her on my other list. Oh, I didn't scroll. Oh. Maybe somebody needs to teach me how to use a computer. Um, yeah. So let's see. The first article we have up on the list is a lack of oversight blamed for the deadly conception diving boat fire. So still a sad story, but it's even sadder. And it kind of comes into what we were speculating early on. The federal safety officials on Tuesday blamed the death of 34 people in a fire aboard the Southern California scuba dive boat directly on the vessel's owner's failures to oversee its vessels and crew properly. National Transportation Safety Board unanimously ruled the pre-dawn fire aboard the Conception, the deadliest maritime disaster in the United States in decades, was a result of an ineffective oversight of the owner Truth Aquatics, including a federal requirement for a roving night patrol. September 2nd, 2019, tragedy killed 33 passengers and one crew member on a Labor Day weekend expedition off the island of Santa Barbara and prompted criminal and safety investigations. Court documents say charges against Conception's Captain Jerry Boylan are imminent. While investigators are unable to determine the exact spark to fire, the five-member NTSB voted to label the inactive, uh, enable the label the inaction by Truth Aquatics as a deadly blazes probable cause board member jennifer homedy who traveled santa barbara in 2019 toured a sister ship the conception blasted bolin and truth aquatics during the nearly four-hour hearing she said the tragedy shouldn't be called an accident i hate the term accident in, the, in this case because in my opinion it's not accident if you fail to operate your company company safely homedy said jill hillsman attorney of relatives for the five victims, said the clients are anxious to see that the charges are made as a result of the tragedy. He called some of Truth Aquatics operations, including the roving watch violation, just jaw-dropping. Attorneys for Boylan and Truth Aquatics did not immediately respond to their request for comments on Tuesday. Hamidi and other board members are also sharply criticized the Coast Guard on Tuesday, saying inadequate Coast Guard regulations contributed to the high death toll, such as a lack of a requirement for smoke detectors, on all accommodation spaces and poor emergency escape arrangements. The board vessels several recommendations to suggest to the Coast Guard. The NTSB does not have enforcement powers and must submit its suggestions to the safety enhancement to bodies like the 
Federal Aviation Administration or the Coast Guard, which have repeatedly rejected some of the board safety recommendations after other disasters. The Coast Guard will be careful to consider the National Transportation Safety Board's recommendation through deliberate process, which will include a review by all subject matter experts, senior leaders responsible for implementing the potential regulatory changes, Lieutenant Commander Scott McBride said in a statement. Investigators said that because the boat burned and sank, they couldn't determine exactly what caused the fire, but they found that it began towards the back of the main deck salon area where divers had plugged in phones, flashlights, and other items with lithium-ion batteries that can spread flames quickly. Investigators told the NTSB that because of some of their covered bodies were wearing shoes, they believed the victims were awake and trying to escape before being overcome with smoke. Coroner reports list smoke inhalation as the cause of death for all. The absence of the required roving parole, investigators said, delayed detection of the fire, allowing it to grow beyond the six-member crew's firefighting capabilities, hampering excavation efforts, and directly leading to the high number of fatalities. Jeffrey Goodman, a lawyer representing the fa- family members of the nine victims, said the board's conclusions confirmed the disaster was predictable and preventable. Truth Aquatics routinely violated federal law by failing to have roving night watch. Sadly, it's just one of the litany of safety features that led to the capture of the de- uh, deviants at Truth Aquatics. Coast Guard records show the conception passed all recent safety inspections. Its records also show that since 1991, no owner, operator, or charter has ever been issued a citation or fine for failure to post a roving patrol. Because of that, NTSB investigators believe the Coast Guard does not have an effective way to verify that boats are operating with watchmen. After the conception fire, the Coast Guard issued a bulletin recommending the limit on unsupervised use of lithium-ion batteries, extensive use of power strips, and extension cords. Some people may walk away and say, well, I wish I knew the ignition source was, but the key here is that the focus should be on the conditions were present that allowed the folk to, the, smoke, the fire to go undetected and to grow to a point where it prevented the excavation or evacuation. Five crew members, including Bolin, were asleep in the upper deck when the fire broke out around 3 a.m. in an area above the only escape hatch, the bunk room, where the passengers and a single crew member were sleeping. Boylan and four other crewmen escaped by jumping the water after making repeated attempts to try and save those below deck. The size of the emergency hats, 22 inches by 22 inches, about 56 centimeters, met regulations, so safety board members criticize it as inadequate. Its location required passengers to climb to an upper bunk and then pull themselves through that opening. I don't see how an average human with a life jacket on could get through the hatch, board member Michael E. Graham said, adding it would be difficult to get up to and through the hatch without being a contortionist. The family of 32 victims also had filed claims against the boat owners Glenn and Dana Fritzler and Truth Aquatics. In truth, the Fritzlers and the company have filed a legal claim to shield them from damages under maritime law that limits liability for vessel owners. Court filings showed they have offered to settle lawsuits with dozens of the victims' relatives. Wow, there's a lot in there. Yes, there is. And like the hatchway aspect, you know, if that's a standard for boats, period, then every boat out there would be suspect from that aspect. Right. Anybody, anybody who has a boat with a hatch of the proper dimensions right now, what would you, what would you be doing? Uh, make amends to get that hatchway redone. Spend the money to do that. What would you do? You're, you're going to sell the boat. Yes, you are. Yeah, if, to a if you're not making, 
yeah, if, if, if you're not making enough money as it is, you're not going to invest. Plus, uh, I'm, you know, th- that's a big boat, but it's not that big. In yeah. fact, I'm surprised they fit that many people on the boat. When you I look was, at the yeah, photos of I was looking at the remains, and I don't know where to put everybody. Yeah, you, you stacked them up like cordwood there in the bottom of the boat. And then the other thing is, you know, people may say, well, why is there not watch? Well, you only need watch in a situation like this. You don't need a watch when nothing bad goes wrong, which is the same thing with life insurance or any other preventive or safety issue. Uh, but that adds to the cost of the boat. Yeah. So... You know, that guy who's doing watch at night isn't available for you to do stuff during the day. So, you know, you have to have a larger crew, which adds to your costs, and then probably also provides less service. So I'm sure what many of them were doing. I mean, if, if they haven't found anybody in violation this time, um, and I, I'm just guessing at this point, does that mean that nobody is doing a watch that they just laugh and say, yeah, that's, it's, that's a recommendation. And then you think well, about it as. I, I also think about what if we're talking about boats that are not USA, or do you take your trips overseas? Are they under the oh, same yeah. requirements? So if this is an issue here, it's an issue everywhere, isn't it? But. Oh, I would think not so. legally. They don't have the same rules. Yeah. Now, what happens, because this was in California waters and it was uh, a U.S. boat, but like your cruise ships, you know, even if it's a U.S. corporation, they're not flagged U.S. vessels. They're flagged someplace else for navigation. So do, do you, when you're in U.S. waters, have to follow the U.S. laws or is it in the country that you're flagged? Well, maritime laws, depending on what they are, that's like dumping. You mm-hmm. can't dump. You can't do the fuel dump. You can't do oil dump. That kind of stuff, they are required by not just U.S. laws, but uh, uh, the U.N. laws, laws of the sea, and uh, maritime law. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, it's true what they've, they said. It would have been nice not to have as many people on board, better hatchways, a roving patrol. But how does that apply to overseas ones, I wonder? Yeah. So the question comes down to, is this just a case of technology's changed and we're using, you know, more rechargeable devices with batteries that occasionally will have these, uh, these hot spots, which cause fire, or is this just something that was bound to happen because we've gotten lax on our safety procedures? Don't know. I know you're not going to take lithium on an airplane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a while there where they weren't letting certain types of phones on, but they've 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 loosened that up a little bit. So then this next one, we you know we had talked about the Golden Ray in a, a few episodes ago, where it didn't pass the anchor test. Uh, crap, and I can't read the rest of this article because uh, I saw it on a mobile phone and it gave it to me, and now they want me to register, which I'm not going to do. But it uh, it looks like just uh, reading the first paragraph that. Uh, instead of going with the anchor they're going to go with that which is a 15 ton anchor uh, they're going to go with piles so this sunday they're going to start work on driving three of the piles with a jackhammer deep in the sounds uh sandy bottom with only a few feet of piling protruding above it uh, yeah the seal piles are 78 feet long 48 inches in diameter will be driven about 75 feet into the sound bed 
and then the piles and the four anchoring uh, functioning anchor, the the four an functioning anchors placed around the shipwreck will be tethered by anchor chain. Okay. So originally they were doing what we thought they were, which was just the, uh, you know, some sort of uh, vessel anchorage. And now they decided that that's not going to have the holding power within the bottom. So they're, they're moving to a pile system. Right. They were talking about the, because it's in shallower waters, they said they, there they have a swift tidal current and tight confines of the sound present unique stabilization issues. In response, the engineer developed that support system of five place anchors. And they dropped the anchors at the locations to steady it during the cutting process. And the other four anchors weigh between six and seven tons each. So that's a lot of hardware they got out there. Yeah. There's some insurance company that's paying quite a bit of money. Yeah. You'd hate to be the shipping company. I wonder what happens to those shipping companies. Because you know your premium's going up. <laughs> when yeah. you when you when you lose a giant vessel with how many thousands of cars on it? Yeah, the the protection barrier that was fifty yards has been expanded to one hundred and fifty yards in anticipation of the upcoming salvage worker. Because obviously, if you're cutting things apart and lifting them, you're going to have debris that you did not anticipate when it was just sitting there. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're gonna you've cut through something. If there's anything there to be spread around, it's going to have it happen. Yeah. I like the one you're going to look at here on that Titanic radio spurs debate. Yeah, the uh, and not normally known for their scuba news, the ABC News, and this is the American Broadcasting Company. I don't think it's the Australian version. Uh, Plan to retrieve the Titanic radio spurs debate on human remains. Uh, a company's plan to retrieve the Titanic radio sparked a debate over whether the famous shipwreck still holds those re human remains. Uh, people have been diving the Titanic wreck for 35 years. No one has found remains, according to the company that owns the salvage right, but the company plans to retrieve the ship's iconic radio equipment that sparked a debate. Could the world's most famous shipwreck still hold the remains of passengers and crews who died a century ago? Lawyers for the U.S. government has raised the questions in an ongoing court battle to block the planned expeditions. They cite archaeologists who say remains could still be there, and they say that the company fails to consider the prospect in its diving plan. 1,500 people died in the wreck, said Paul Johnson, curator of maritime history at Smithsonian Naval Museum of American History. You can't possibly tell me that some of the remains aren't buried deep somewhere within where there are no currents. The company RMS Titanic wants to exhibit the ship's Marconi wireless telegraph machine. It broadcasts in the sinking ocean liner's distress calls and helps save about 700 people in lifeboats. Retrieving the equipment would require an unmanned submersible to slip through the skylight and cut into a heavily corroded roof of the ship's deck. A suction dredge would remove loose silt while manipulated arms could cut electrical cords. The RMS Titanic says human remains likely would have been noticed after roughly 200 dives. It's not like taking a giant shovel to Gettysburg, said David Gallo, an oceanographer and company's advisor. And there's an unwritten rule that should we see human remains, we turn off the cameras and decide what to do next. Dispute stems from a larger debate over the how the Titanic's victims should be honored and whether the expedition should be allowed to enter its hall. In, Maine, in May, a federal judge in Norfolk, Virginia, approved the expedition. U.S. Judge Rebecca Beach Smith wrote in the recovery of the wireless 
rate or the wired radio will contribute to the legacy left by the indelible loss of the Titanic, those who survived and those who gave their life. But the U.S. government filed a legal challenge in June claiming the undertaking would violate federal law and a pact with Britain recognizes the wreck of the memorial site. U.S. attorneys argue the agreement regulates the entity of the wreck to ensure its halls, artifacts, and any human remains are disturbed. The case is pending before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond. Titanic was traveling from England to New York in 1912, where it struck an iceberg and sank in the North Atlantic. Wreck was discovered in 1985. And they go on. But I'm I'm puzzled. You know, it, you know, there's so many places where this has gone wrong. Um, you know, this company owns the salvage wreck. Why do we think every wreck that had somebody die on it becomes some sort of monument forever and ever and ever and ever? And oh, then we why do we why do we have one government agency suing another government agency, both with our money? Well, I'm I'm confused because the firm is the court recognized steward of the Titanic artifacts already brought up. Yes. Overseeing thousands of items, including silverware, which was on the boat, China, gold coins. Uh, so, so the company has always treated the wreck as both an archaeological site and grave site with respect and reverence. And that doesn't change whether, in fact, human remains could possibly exist. They, they, then they went into about the sea creatures, blah, blah, has definitely eating them away. Titanic is 2.4 miles below the surface. And they're talking about, well, whale bones have been discovered at similar depths as were human remains. But when the Air France uh, plane crashed, was that at two and a half miles down? I don't I mean, remember have, that being at two and a half miles. There have been some that have been that deep. I'm trying to remember if Air France was. I don't remember that one being that deep. But you're, but you're talking like about... But that's in 2009. Yeah. And as they said, they haven't found any. I mean, you think of how many people have gone. And they found shoes. They found clothing. But they haven't found bodies. But my, I, this is not the reason. There, there is some other reason we're not aware why somebody's got their shorts and a knot on this. And it's kind of like my position is you shall not touch it. So I'm going to work on every way to get it to go. So did somebody tick somebody off at a dinner party? Did they not like their clothing or what the heck's going on here? But this seems a little beyond to me. I mean, when we die, do does wherever we die become a memorial or if it's tragic? I mean, if, if, you know, you, you get murdered, does the house you get murdered in become a, uh, you know, some sort of uh, monument to your life. I, it, it, I don't understand this thinking. Yeah. And not that time makes that big a deal, but this is a hundred years ago too. Yeah. There's gotta be more to it to hold to, to do about nothing. Or did somebody, ha you know, this is like, Hey, I want to burn the next three years of, uh, you know, I've, I've got to do so much stuff to, to keep my job and show I'm doing something. So here's what I'll do. I'll go and take this case on. But yeah, there, there's something. Some somebody called somebody and said something. They want something to happen. So that's what appears to be going on on here. Because I I just don't even agree with the original premise of why they they can't be. But it's in pristine condition, Mac. Yeah, we can yeah. still bring it up. 
And here's somebody who's actually trying to do something to preserve it. So you'd have some records. If that's going to be your argument, then it seemed like you'd be in support of it. But yeah. Now, hopefully nobody died in this next one. Blue Water Park sinks an airplane for scuba divers. Mark, uh, was it the Giorgio owner of scuba diving facility, Blue Water Park and Plenum, which, uh, is down there in Alabama recently fulfilled a long time goal of sinking a plane in his park for scuba divers to enjoy. Uh, he'd been known to the quarry turned the lake for about five years, been using the facility since he was a teenager. He has dedicated his life to providing instruction and a haven for those in the Southeastern United States who are interested in, or have a love for scuba diving. Has been a two-year process. It's worth it because it makes a very unique underwater site. We have cars, trucks, an old fire truck, old school buses, boats. So this plane is a very nice addition to what we already have. He said most of these vehicles are along the shoreline, but the plane is positioned away from the shoreline so divers can get better and more entertaining experience when they're out on the lake. Actually acquiring the place was a tough process, but through a series of lucky events, he was able to have the plane shipped and have clearance from local authorities and have the plane dropped in the lake on October 8th with the help of different groups and a crane. To be placed in the lake, the plane had to be lifted by the crane up over a large portion of trees before set in the lake with floating devices and dragged out by boats to slowly sink the exact location uh, did Giorgio and his crew wanted it to. After sinking the plane, it sits approximately 27 to 40 feet below the water you know, a little over 10 meters and the door was removed to make it easier to swim through is one of those things that some of it was coincide, a uh, coincidence of God. It had been frustrating because I was sitting there thinking about how I really want to get in the water. It came out great in the end. I think it's a great addition to the park. The park is not only an attraction for those interested in diving. It also serves a place for police departments to train their dive teams. It's a good training for police departments. Their dive teams train out here searching for people who have drowned to look for evidence for crime, to have something like a plane in the lake so they can use it for their exercise is also going to be a help to them. He said that the effort was possible because of assistance from CPD, Scuba Ventures, Dodson International Parts, American Drilling Crane Division, Restored Aircraft Sales and Service, LLC, C&D Aviation. Blue Water Park will be closed during the winter and we open during the spring. Why, in Alabama, why do you need to close in the winter? Come on. Not for two weeks. Come on. Yeah. Hey, we <laughs> cut through we cut through the water with a chainsaw on the way. You can Actually, now be you open. gotta remember Alabama gets snow and ice, especially northern Alabama. Yeah. Is this I, I'm I have to admit my Alabama is it's a state and that's about what I know. I think I've I've been <laughs> I I've been I'm usually through it. In fact, I think I could go through georgia on my way to florida i don't know I may, I may never have ever been in alabama well i got pictures of me building a snowman in huntsville alabama so we didn't have a lot of snow but we had a hell of a lot of ice and you're talking like one inch of ice on the highways yeah. oh Nobody yeah down how to drive unless you got yeah. chains yeah I, I had friends in uh little rock arkansas and they said that they would they would bring out trucks with brushes on the front and they and they said it was kind of like curling all you were doing was polishing the ice so the cars would really slide yeah uh, but that's cool i mean that's a nice little looks like a little jet wouldn't you say it was like a little passenger jet they they're putting on there oh let me look real quick whoa went to the wrong item again yeah they didn't say anything about the cleaning or prep required um i'm i'm guessing this is a fairly modern you know post 
seventies vessel, so uh, or aircraft. Yeah, well, it's usually pretty easy to clean those out. You know, the seats and stuff are not in it because you want right. an obstructed way through. The engines are gone. Uh, it yeah. looks. I'm looking. It looks like that has gear on it, but all you got to do is bleed the hydraulics out. Yeah. And yeah, you bleed the hydraulics out, and you you probably weld it so they don't collapse. And so yeah, it's cool. a lot easier, I think, than a than a boat. Yes. So good for them. No, one of those places I wouldn't mind diving. Maybe I go down there and dive. A, maybe we should get an airplane out here in the big lake for the same reason. Don't have that pain aspect. You don't have the asbestos to worry about. Historic plane? No. Not necessarily historic, but a nice well, big I'm, one. I'm trying to think with the preserve laws what it would have to be. Hmm. Flew over Lake Michigan once? I mean, would that be the requirement? <laughs> One of the engineers once visited Lake Mich- uh, visited Michigan. Um, that uh, you know that you, you say that I think that would be a, a a draw. The biggest airplane I've seen or that had crashed in Lake Michigan was a B fifty two bomber. Uh, but when it hit, it pretty much disintegrated, and they did go through. Uh, Navy divers they were here for a couple of months picking up all the parts and pieces. Okay, so let's talk about that. What would it take? So you'd want to do a big plane. But yeah. how would like you get Right, but Yeah, oh that'd be that'd be amazing. Oh my gosh. But how well, would you You fly it into Benton Harbor, for example. You're what, two miles from the water. Okay. That's so, number then, one. Number then two. How would you, you take, get it from there? <laughs> you take the wings off. Okay. Easy to put on a barge. Put back off. Is, is there? Can you, you get could, to the water from the airport there? Well, I mean, you you can move the body until okay. you get down to the harbor. Then you okay. can barge it out, at least the body out. You'd still have to reattach the wings, which you could do, but it would cost you some money. You bring it towards the shore, bring the other two barges out with the wings, bring them over, attach them. If we only now knew somebody got, who, who, who had any connection with the airport, yeah, that would help. <laughs> I'm on the board. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually like I, that. I would, like that I would idea. Pick a place that has some big facility there, and/or a dockage, like the steel mill. You could bring a carcass out to the steel mill because they got big, big barges. They got nice docks to move things out. Yeah, you could do it. You could do it. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, and I think you could get a draw, especially if you could get a military aircraft. Uh, huh. I, w- I wonder what well, that if, would take. If we could still find, well, you know, we've got one out there already, right off of St. Joe. Well, um, but, Kevin and I have been out there a couple of years ago looking for it, just cannot find the damn thing. Yeah. It's a PV 2 Neptune bomber. It yeah, crashed yeah. there at Tiscornia in, 19, in the 50s. Yeah. I, I, I keep telling people about that, and I have yet to meet anybody who was aware it, was, it had ever been there. As a side note, I did see something last night that I found extremely interesting. You know where the U-boat, you know, Lake Michigan has basically, or in this area, we have two German U-boats. One is the UC-97 in Lake Michigan, and we have the U-505 in Chicago at the museum, right? Yeah. All right. What do you know about the 505? Uh, Not a lot. Uh... We know it was captured 
before they could scuttle the boat. Well, last night, I actually watched the 15-minute Navy film on them shelling that sucker, how the crew got off, how that boat almost sank, and how they towed it in. It 15 minutes of really good stuff on that wow. 505. I thought, that's freaking amazing. I never knew that. But to see the film and then go to the boat, it's quite interesting. It adds a lot of substance to it. So I made a note of what it was on Netflix I was going to give Kevin because he'll find some way to get a snippet of that. We could put it on the club site. Yeah. It is worth looking at. Excellent. Those guys had Hunanis who got on that sinking sub to close the hatch. Yeah. So so you said this was on Netflix? It was a show? Yeah, it was under uh, documentaries. Uh Uh-huh. The The Submarines. I think that's what it was called. And it started out with a U-505. And it's like, got my attention to when I realized what it was, of how wow. they found it, how they damaged it, how they, when it surfaced, they used surface fire deliberately trying to make the people get off, which they did. Uh, and then they had the guys run over on their boats, get onto it, tried to stop it from sinking. And it almost sank twice. Wow. And it's like, I would not have wanted to be down in the lower part of that boat because it's always underwater. Yeah. Well, they you figure because they, they were closing, they were trying to close hatches, right? Yeah, yeah. And the destroyer wow. and stuff couldn't tow it fast enough to get the diving planes out of the way. And then they actually had the aircraft carrier, which was part of the, they, they did this deliberately to capture that boat. They used wow. the aircraft carrier to tow it because that was something big enough with how much water it had in it to get it going. Oh. Then finally, another tugboat, uh, ocean tug for salvage came up, was able to get onto it, tow it fast enough that they could get the engines recharged, meaning they got the props returned, charged the batteries. Then they could get the pumps working to pump it out. It was, wow. it's quite interesting. It was complex, wow. but it was really interesting. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I mean, that, that that is some of the greatest generation to be able to pull stuff like that off. Uh, Karen in the chat room uh, has a YouTube video called Attack and Capture, the story of boat U-Boat 505. So I wonder if that's got some of the same footage that that uh, Netflix show had. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of Netflix, if, you, if you're looking for another underwater uh, show to watch. It was, uh, oh, I think it was called my octopus teacher was on Netflix, a documentary. And it's about this, uh, guy who was a, a, a filmmaker. He would, he did a lot of, uh, you know, nature films. He was a cameraman and stuff and he just kind of gotten burned out and he had grown up along the shore. So kind of a sabbatical, he was, took a year and he was just going every day and swimming out into the bay, into these kelp beds. And he noticed this octopus. And so every day for a, for about a year, he filmed this octopus and tried to figure out what he could learn. So it's a very cool story. He did free diving because he said he just enjoyed free diving more than scuba diving. So as you're watching it, you got to remember that he's doing breath holds to get all these shots. Uh, and there's some quite long shots. So, so 
I just took a quick look at that video. A lot of the snippets come from yeah. that other Navy film. The actual uh, action shots were the uh -huh. ones in that film. Actually, okay. I think they must have processed them better because it looks better on her video than it did the one I looked at. Okay. Well, because a lot of times there's there's like basic material and then there's, it depends on who how somebody's going to post-process. You know, some, some of these uh, bits of software you get for video now, they can make it look better than it, was, it even was. Uh, yeah, the verbiage on the front of the June 4th reference uh, was identical the way that started. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to take a look at that. So thanks for posting that, Karen, and I'll take a peek because I, as I'm doing some other work, it's good distraction. Have you ever seen the 505? Uh, is this the one that's in the Chicago Museum? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been on that one probably you know, on the tours, I, I was at at the old location when it was outside. And yep. then I've, and I've gone twice since they've moved it inside and they, they've done an amazing job of moving it inside. Yeah. It was, it was great outside. I like seeing it, but there's, you know, weather and well, time we're getting to it. Well, and, that's, uh, that's part of the story about that. Did you realize that when they got it, it was pretty much stripped? The engine I heard that. Because the Navy took because their optics were better than ours. Some of the engine information was better. So they had stripped the boat. Well, when the museum got it, the German said, German government was, wait a minute, we don't want you to do that. We want to make it representative of what it really looked like. So they donated the parts and pieces to fill that boat back up. Wow. I mean, that's, that's very impressive. And... That, I mean, that, that, how many years after the war was it when they put it as a museum piece? I, I don't really remember on that. I do know that if you go to the, um, there's a really great museum in uh, Munich, and they also have a German submarine, their own, and they've got it incorporated into the building that it goes up several steps, uh, several stories, and those are actually different levels in the building. Wow. It, it's, it's, it's similar, but different in a nice way. Uh -huh. Yeah. I, I'm glad they did that. And I just hope they get some of these others, uh, that we've been talking about, you know, the one that, uh, the 97, that would be quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. I haven't heard anything from Taurus on that one lately, but, uh, I'm sure he's still got his fingers in the pies trying to get that resolved. Yeah. He's, he's, he's got to shame a few more people. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's one of those, why is there so much governmental interference in something that should be right. easy to resolve? Well, it's the same thing with the Titanic. There's somebody who's got a hair someplace and they've just decided that it's not the way they want. Yeah. That's, that's the way a lot of things in life are, is that there's somebody who thinks that no matter what, they're going to get their way. I mean. Kind of some of the irritating. You got rules, but then now uh, rules are made for other people to have other rules. So, yeah. Well, how about this? If you're a South Carolina tourist, would you think it is possible to find something this large? A scuba diving off Panama City, South Carolina resident recently discovered a sand dollar that might give him the world record holder a run its, for its money. Less than a week since its discovery, the almost seven inch sand dollar now sits swaddled in bubble wrap awaiting confirmation. I didn't realize I would go on a fall break and potentially beat a world record. Said uh, Patrick 
Lestaroso, a 22-year-old senior at the University of South Carolina Upstate. It's kind of exciting. He swam across to find his find on October 16th while diving excursion in the Gulf of Mexico where, uh, with the Panama City Dive Center. He said the sand dollar submerged near the wreckage of the hovercraft, a sunken plane that sits about six nautical miles off the coast of Panama City, according to the Information Dive Center's website. While immediately he knew the sand dollar was abnormally large, he didn't realize exactly how big it was until he brought it on board the boat. Everybody was kind of surprised how big it was, but nobody realized it could actually be a record beater. He and the captain from the dive center measured the sand dollar to find it was almost seven inches in diameter, a size that he said the captain believed shattered the current world record. Early this year, a similar size sand dollar was discovered by Texas man off the coast of Walton County. While the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission certifies records for many marine species, it does not track sand dollar records, according to the Amanda Nally, a public information specialist for FWC. For Corey Atkins, a dive instructor with more than 25 years' experience, uh, Discovery is the largest sand dollar he's ever seen. It doesn't turn out to be a, a world record. Huh. That's pretty. I like the way they had the hand with the side of it, the picture. Yeah. So you can really see what it looks like. My grandfather used to love sand dollars. He would, anytime he went south, he would always try to get some. And he did something where you would break them open. And there was, I can try to remember what he called them, angels, wings or something. There was just a structure in the, in the sand dollar that he just thought was cool. And he made all sorts of dioramas and displays with them. So yeah, neat. And then this is a press release by a dive center, but I thought the topic caught my mind is, uh, interest five reasons why people should scuba dive. So I thought we might go over it and see if we agreed with it. and the first one on the list was take your beach holiday to a new level. Scuba diving can add some extra adventure to any beach holiday, discover new underwater scenery, species, maybe even wrecks while doing some something active. Diving is also a great way for the whole family, a great way to meet some awesome people along the way. And uh, I think so. It's kind of a, a run on there, quite a few things to it. But, you know, if you're going on a, a, a holiday, it's a, a good thing to do, but for many of us, diving is a lifestyle. So what else would you do on a vacation? Uh, experience a new world. You just have to dive under the waves and be transported to a magical world, whether you're a tropical reef or you're diving a cenote. Scuba diving is actually incredibly peaceful. You can move freely in all directions without any restrictions of gravity. You are being used to feeling. If there's anything that comes close to filing, diving is probably yet. And I have to absolutely agree that was the first thing when i did a discover scuba diving dive is it's like why doesn't everybody do this it's just uh an amazing it's like you're a superhero well of course you are yeah i can breathe underwater who can do that you get to really see the world once you discover the amazing feeling of diving you'll plan your holiday in a completely different way you search for new exciting places to dive maybe even create your own scuba bucket list it's impossible to spend time underwater and not learn to love and respect the ocean. Ocean covers 71% of Earth, so you really want to see the world. Scuba diving gives you access to two-thirds parts of the tiny number of people who dare to explore. And then uh, get to see some epic marine animals. Coral reefs are the most diverse of marine ecosystems. Because they're so diverse, they're also called the rainforest of the sea. Sometimes we go to aquariums, but nothing compares to watch animals in their own habitat. 
be it to see dolphins, whale sharks, manta rays, and turtles, among many others. Keep traveling. You get to travel to exotic places to fill your diving desires. This might be the best of the five reasons you should dive. It may really change your life. Live in exotic destinations. Spend your days in the beach, on the boat, underwater, sharing your passion for the underwater world. You can change your lifestyle completely or change destinations every time you go on holidays. So that was a good article. Uh, and the this was from the, there's a press release and they're trying to direct you to underwatercowboy.com. It looks like they're out of Miami. Now, I went to the same item you just uh-huh. showed, and mine is on spaceships. Oh. <laughs> Stunned after discovering spaceship? Oh, that's the next one. Oh, I'm ahead that, of you then. Sorry about that. Well, either that or maybe I paste the wrong links and not like I haven't done that before. But uh, the archaeology breakthrough, shipwreck hunters have been stunned after discovering a spaceship. Uh, the archaeologists found a stunning spaceship-like object while searching for shipwrecks in the Baltic Sea. The Baltic Sea has become a hot spot for shipwreck discoveries in recent years with finds from vessels from centuries gone by shedding new lights in the world's most fa- famous eras. Velo Mass, a researcher who pinpointed many of the ships, the ships once said the boat languished at the bottom of the sea long before some of the sea's most famous finds. He said there are hundreds of Viking ships out there, hundreds of old trading ships, hundreds of warships. The Baltic is an archaeological paradise. Sweden has become synonymous, uh, synonymous with such finds, but shipwreck hunters found something very different near the Scandinavian coast in 2012. Out searching for a shipwreck, the search, the, a secret location between Sweden and Finland, Deep Sea Salvage Company Ocean Explorer captured an incredible image more than 80 meters below the surface. Oh, I, I uh, we've covered this one before. What threw me off is the photos from a different angle. Well, there are different photos, too, if you're going all the way to the bottom. I hadn't seen these. Yeah. Well, and then the thing is, you got to read it. It looks like a photo, but it says, an Ocean X interpretation of what the Baltic yeah. Sea anomaly may look like. Yeah. So... Uh, but what was the one in the bottom that you saw? Is that was that the one? Right, the one that appears to be enhanced, because yes. that probably looks like the Millennial Falcon. Yeah, that was the one we've covered. Was the Millennial Falcon? Yep. But they, all the other shots are showing up from up above, and I think it was a like a side scan. So yeah, we got caught. This is one of those. Even though it was published on October sixteenth, this is one of those websites where they regurgitate old stuff. You know, add a few new quotes and then post it out there, knowing that people will pick it up. Yeah. Ancient alien theorists once believed. <laughs> McElhaney oh. swallowed it left, right, and center. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he believes anything. Well, I, th- I thought this was a, it was a good topic. It, it uh, showed up in my, my search results. So some of the other ones in there, because they, they know they've got you. If you're coming to this one, they got all these other articles you want to see. Oh, yeah. So they got some of the other Black Seas that we've covered before. <laughs> uh, what's that one that looks like the Vasa? Uh, so, some, yeah, some some beautiful. Is it, so the, designed to keep you clicking, as we were talking about earlier. Click, 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 click. Well, that does it for Scuba the News. So we have got a little bit on there, a little bit of follow-up, a little bit of new stuff. Great feedback from the chat room. So. I think we've done it. Uh, diving. Has anybody been get, really getting any diving in? Um, the I have not heard of anyone for the last week. 
Yeah. Uh, went out last weekend, as I proposed. Uh, since I have a back zip suit, I had no divers show up, so I could not get in the water. <laughs> um, I did have one visitor who came to see how many crazy people would dive <laughs> from Chicago. Uh, oh. He wasn't going to stick around for the hour and a half I was going to be out in the water. But uh, we did have a good long talk, and uh, he is a diver. Uh-huh. And he's uh, was interested in getting some cold water diving in with ice. Oh, okay. Well, I'll make so sure you get his contact information. We'll have to have to bug him. Yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting that time of year where it's getting dark earlier, so pretty much you're, unless you're retired and have uh, afternoons available, you're, you're not going to be able to slip one in during the week. Uh, so still got the Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, leaves are falling, so I'm, I'm betting that the river is getting pretty well covered by now. Yeah, I imagine it will be. I know the visibility uh, last week, you could be on the end of the dock and you could see the bottom looking straight out even. So it looked really nice. So I'll get out there, I think, this month anyway. Yeah. Well, I do have a um, an interesting article to, to review okay. with you people. It's um, concerning... Recompression chambers, and there's an issue with this. Dan Orr reports on closing recompression chambers. There are so few cases of divers needing the therapeutic recompression these days that many United States chambers are no longer available 24-7, or they've been shut down entirely. In fact, an injured diver may need to be transported to a different state in case of an emergency. Dan Orr, who is the, original, uh, the former CEO of Divers Alert Network, or DAN, has been working with the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society, the UHMS, to address hyperbaric chamber availability. And then they asked Undercurrent to publish a story on the chamber availability. And basically what they're, they're basically saying is, every US diver and dive operation needs to know this. So it's titled, Diving Equipment, Health and Safety, A Crisis Lurking Below the Surface, Emergency Hyperbaric Treatment Availability. There are millions of recreational scuba divers in the U.S., hundreds of thousands of traveling divers from countries around the world, making tens of millions of enjoyable recreational dives each year in unique dive locations all over America. In the unlikely event that any of these divers would suffer a pressure-related diving injury, they trust that the U.S. medical system will provide state-of-the-art care for their injuries. As these divers are preparing to enjoy a pleasurable dive in some of the world's most popular dive locations in the country, little do they know that if an unlikely pressure-related incident were to occur, they may have a bad experience and a delay in treatment that could adversely impact their chance for a successful outcome. Now, unknown to most divers, there is a steadily decreasing number of hyperbaric treatment facilities in the USA willing to treat them even in a life-threatening emergency for decompression sickness or arterial gas embolism. The situation places all divers at much greater risk than many of us would have realized. For example, in May of 2020, a recreational diver made a dive off the coast of Pensacola, Florida. After surface, uh, surfacing, they experienced serious neurological symptoms that were in, 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 uh, indicative of a pressure-related diving injury. 
Divers in that area had been aware that there were five hyperbaric training or treatment facilities in Pensacola that had been providing oxygen therapy for a variety of non-diving medical conditions, but were totally unaware that not one of these facilities would provide emergency care for this severely injured diver. Instead of being treated at one of these treatment facilities only minutes away, the diver had to be transported to a treatment facility in Mobile, Alabama that was willing to, uh, willing to be available to treat the injured diver 24-7. The facility in Mobile, Alabama is one of the very few treatment facilities in the U.S. that continues to offer emergency care for injured divers 24-7, despite the fact that it may not be financially adv advantageous to do so. This particular hyperbaric facility owned by the Wallace family continues to provide this as a public service for the Gulf Coast diving community. The injured diver in this example was fortunately treated successfully with no residual symptoms despite the treatment delay. As accident data from Divers Alert Network, Dan, has shown, treatment delays such as occurred during diver's care is one of the most significant risk factors for a negative outcome when treating divers with decompression sickness or arterial gas embolism. This reduced capacity or capability to provide emergency treatment for diving accidents also impact local fire and police forces, many of which have diving rescue teams, impacts federal law enforcement agencies, wild and fish life services, park services, other state and federal agencies with dive teams, as well as military divers conducting training in many areas away from the location of their unit chamber. There are approximately 1,300 treatment facilities, each which has one or more hyperbaric chambers that currently provide hyperbaric oxygen therapy in the United States. As recently as two decades ago, the large majority of hyperbaric treatment facilities were available to provide emergency treatment on a 24-7 basis. But today, fewer than 10%, or 130, of these facilities offer emergency treatment. And some treatments, or some facilities, only do so intermittently. Non-diving patients are treated for wound healing therapy, and they dominate the chamber usage. And a lot of the chambers are monolungs, and only go down to approximately one atmosphere. As a business enterprise, the scheduled wound healing therapy model is much more profitable than emergency hyperbaric treatment for pressure-related diving injuries. In the past, hospitals and other hyperbaric treatment facilities underwrote the additional costs associated with providing 24-7 access to emergency treatment as a public service for those require it. Now, because of the negative economic impact as well as concerns for staffing and training considerations and always the potential for legal liability, most hyperbaric treatment facilities have ceased to provide 24-7 access to emergency hyperbaric treatment. For the recreational diving community, this is a critical safety issue. Recreational divers are regularly diving in locations where they believe emergency treatment is available but is not because just because it was in the past does not mean it will be and is now. From a diver U.S. perspective, there is an urgent need to correct the decreasing number of availabilities of the chambers, especially in the U.S. health care system. 
The Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society has been working to address the situation within the U.S. healthcare system by alerting government organizations. In a letter they recently crafted and distributed, they identified that this situation will require the identification and implementation of strategies to incentivize hyperbaric treatment facilities to offer emergency treatment. Options accomplishing this include direct federal or state grants to hyperbaric facilities that offer emergency hyperbaric treatment. Protection from legal liability for hyper treatment, hyperbaric treatment facilities and medical providers who provide emergency treatment to divers and other non-diving patients who require it. Recognition of the public service performed by the hyperbaric treatment facilities that offer emergency treatment when indicated. And favorable conditions or considerations with respect to Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance reimbursements to hyperbaric treatment facilities and medical providers that offer emergency hyperbaric treatment, including, I'm not sure what carve-outs mean, but carve-outs to inpatient diagnosis-related groups payment. Basically, give them some kind, make sure they pay for it or help pay for it. And incentives for military hyperbaric facilities to provide, to provide emergency treatment for civilian patients through emphasis on the training benefit to military provided, providers that this accomplishes. And they also would like third-party reimbursement for treatment provided to civilian patients by military facilities. And protection from lawsuits of the military facilities from the public providing this service activity. So what is concerned and a safety conscious diver to do? Well, it's important to be a member of DAN, the you know, Divers Alert Network, to support emergency medical services they provide. Always have the DAN emergency hotline number in your emergency assistant plan. And if a pressure-related emergency were to occur, call DAN because they can assist in getting you to the most appropriate available treatment facility with as little delay as possible. Remember, the treatment facility you may be referred to may not be your local dive location. But Dan is aware of all locations of all treatments available to treat under divers 24-7. Like any other risk in diver safety, you got to identify and find ways to mitigate that risk. We now know that the decreasing availability of treatment facilities Willing to provide the surface when we need it most increases our risk as divers. We should be mobilizing and working to mitigate that risk by working with local, state, national officials to let once available treatment facilities know of our concern, work with them to find ways to reduce that risk through cooperative and supportive measures. Now, this does not necessarily reply or respond or to applies to uh, commercial divings because they normally have their own chamber as required by a lot of the OSHA regulations. But, uh, you know, from 1300 to 130, whoops, where are you diving? Where are you diving? Yeah. You might want to take that in consideration if you think you might get bent. Yeah. Well, it'd be nice to see that uh, in a graphic. 
Uh, I wonder if somebody's got a map out there yeah, I haven't showing gone all those to, chambers. Yeah, I haven't gone to Dan to double check and see if they do have that map or where it's located. You know, are they located around the coastal areas, which one would think, since that's where a, a large majority of, of diving occurs. So what happens if you're here? Yeah, well, that's what I'd like to, to know is where are they? And uh, now it, it's it's certainly a money thing, but it's also a hassle. I mean, we've talked to uh, Rick Sass several times about the chamber there in Kalamazoo that he helps run. I mean, he, he donates his time and I think he even helps fund operation of that chamber himself. That's what we've done. Some uh, You can do some chamber rides just to kind of understand how you're going to behave at depth. Uh, you know, it gives them some practice and some training for him and, you know, and the tenders that will go down with you. Uh, but I, I wonder how he's been affected because that, that chamber there's, they've, the hospitals talked a couple times about closing. In fact, they probably would have, but uh, they couldn't use the location for what they wanted to. So they thought, eh, we'll just keep it going. So. Uh, because of fast, basically. Yeah. Well, I think what we need to do is we need to identify all these chambers and then identify the ones that aren't doing it. Uh, there needs to be an initiative to try and convince them that they need to open these up. Uh, there's got there's going to have to be some sort of support. And then maybe this is something that you can get some, uh, you know, maybe it becomes a charity type of thing where you you have these nonprofits that go and help run it because you've got to have staffing. For the, so to have to be able to say you've got 24-7, you can't just have a guy in a tender and, yeah, they know how to do it because who's to say they're on vacation or in town or sick or unavailable? So you've got to have a little bit of depth. Um, and as I had heard it was that most of the local hospitals were doing, you know, you know the, the uh, chambers for carbon monoxide poisoning. And so they had little, you know, those things were inexpensive, you know, a couple uses pretty much paid for them. Uh, so why have a big chamber with all the overhead when you can do most of what a hospital needs in one of these, these, uh, smaller units. Yep. Uh, and so I think that's probably what's coming to it. I mean, some, some hospitals, especially the more rural ones have had to make some decisions. So, uh, there's going to have to be some sort of initiative just as a protective measure. You want to be able to have access to that as a diver. You, you hope, knock on wood, that you're not going to have a problem. But if you do or somebody does, you want to know that it's it's there and available. Or you're planning on using one and find out, oops, it's closed. Oh, yeah. Well, and then that that's even more concerning is, is the information being adequately communicated. Uh, you would hope so, but I don't know. And if, if the chamber was open in January, is it open in February? Is it open in March? And who do they tell? Or did the hospital just go, ah, we don't do it. You know, we've talked to somebody, you know, 200 miles away and we'll just refer them there. Well, if you're already 200 miles from that chamber and then you're going, now, now you're, you're 400 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Not good at all. Yeah, but the Dan's a good idea. I need, I need to go and, and get mine renewed. Yeah. I was not aware that they had knocked it down from, you know, 1600 to 160. That's a hell of a cut. Yeah. And was that just in the last year they said? Last couple of years. 
the last couple of years. So it's been a, it's been a trend then. And, uh, I'm sure the pandemic did nothing to help it because unless you're a, a hospital in the hot spot, you, even though you are getting more money for the COVID cases, the fact that you had all your electric elective surgeries and other procedures that paid for the institution, I mean, they're, they're kind of like a, another, you know, any other business, you, you've got design capacity that you're going for and you're used to having that. And then you've got staff and people support it. And if you don't have the volume there, uh, you're in the red pretty quick. Yeah. So very good article. Thank you. I mean, that was uh, eye opening and it makes me aware of some things that I might have to do some phone calls on. Well, let's see. I think we're, you know, we've, we've kind of done it now. Did the articles, talked about the diving, did the safety story. Uh, do you got anything you want to plug before we head on out of here? Uh, not at this particular time. I'm Like I said, I'm not going to be diving until I can get my, I had a, like I told you earlier, I had a root canal that's yeah. kicking my butt. So yeah. until that gets resolved, I can't even put a bite thing in my mouth. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds painful. Well, hopefully that goes pretty quick. I'm uh, hoping so. And uh, so hopefully everybody's enjoying the program. You know, we appreciate you downloading and listening. Thank you to everybody in the chat room. Once again, our old diehards coming in there. If you, if you want to listen, we record live 930 Eastern time. And you can get in the chat room and listen and contribute. And chat room has all sorts of bonus material that we don't yeah, have in here. And post pictures of shark teeth that we don't have uh, here. Yeah, if you want to rub it in, you know, if you've, you've done amazing dive and you want to, <laughs> say nah nah this is what we got to do then the chat room you just can't beat it we're on facebook at facebook facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed on twitter at scuba obsessed if you uh have the funds and the ability to do so we certainly would appreciate your support we're hitting that time of year when i got to write some big checks to some hosting companies and just so you're aware those indirectly those hosting that you know by supporting the show you're supporting the hosting of the show and we host a lot of other dive related websites on there for nonprofit diving groups. I'm just one of those things I've done. I've hosted their, their websites and yeah, you know, I've never charged them, but that's all related. So you're helping, you're helping out all sorts of diving related activities by contributing to the show. Okay. I think we are to that time of the show. Are you ready? Ooh. Ever ready. You're ready, but I'm not. Where'd my notes go? Oh, there it is. I just had it in the wrong screen. We'll bring it up here. So that's one of these. A professor, a construction worker, a biologist, and a doctor walk into a bar. First, the professor sighs. The bartender asks him what's wrong. The professor says, as you can see, I'm a professor of philosophy, and today I went in too deep. I was in a lecture and was explaining everything, particularly deep philosophy. My students complained that I was going too far, but I kept going deeper and deeper. In the end, I went so deep that my student dropped the class. The construction worker hears this and scoffs. He turns to the professor and says, yeah, you call that a problem? Let me tell you about a real man's problem. As you can see, I'm an excavating expert. As I was working today, I was digging a particularly deep hole. My contractor explained that I was going in too far. I kept going deeper and deeper. And in the end, I went so deep, I broke a pipeline. The biologist hears this, both of their stories, and scoffs. He turns to the professor and the construction worker and says, you call that a problem? 
My problem is a matter of life and death. As you can see, I'm a marine biologist. I was scuba diving today and make a particularly deep dive. My assistant said I was going too far, but I kept going deeper and deeper. In the end, I was so deep, I nearly drowned. The doctor who's been listening quietly the whole time finally speaks up. You call those problems? Let me tell you about one that's both a real man's problem, a matter of life and death. As you see, I'm a proctologist. <laughs> yeah yeah i'm afraid to uh yeah i think i still got a few a few years for my re-examination but uh, hopefully i can forget this one <laughs> so until next time go out there and get wet stay safe